My first experience of adversarial collaboration was about 40 years ago. My wife, Anne Triesman, and I were studying a new paradigm involving apparent motion and priming. It's a nice effect. There's a lot of work on it, and quite a few studies since have followed up on this work. Anne and I had many ideas, and we designed a large number of experiments, most of which succeeded. There was only one trouble. We didn't agree on the nature of the phenomena. We had different stories about the role of attention in the effect, and the difference didn't prevent us from planning and interpreting useful experiments, but we found it difficult to construct a coherent theory. Then came February and the invitation to participate in the meeting of the Psychonomic Society in November. I suggested to Anne that we take two consecutive 25-minute slots, which would give us a whole hour. She said, but we don't agree, which I answered by, don't you believe in the scientific method? We'll run experiments to, dis to determine who of us is right. There's plenty of time before November. So we started a cycle of critical experiments. I would design a study that I believe Anne could not explain, get her to agree, and we would run that study. The results would come out as I had predicted, and there I observed a phenomenon that I called the 15 IQ point benefit. Within minutes of seeing the results, Anne would find a plausible explanation of why they were entirely compatible with her view, after all. Anne was always very clever, but at those moments she would become quite extraordinary, able to come up with arguments that surprised and silenced me. Then, I would go back to the drawing board, design another experiment, and it would all happen again. I was the aggressor in those games, until Anne became exasperated and designed a critical test of my view. I agreed to the challenge, the results came in as Anne had expected, but it was my turn to get my 15 points, and I rejected the rejection of my theory. That was the end of that particular game. We went on to give two talks Two good talks, actually, in November, somehow finessing the disagreement, but it took us eight more years before we published a paper summarizing these experiments, which got a substantial amount of attention. Now, my faith in my naive version of the scientific method never recovered. And I want to comment on two parts of that story, the 15-point effect and the fact that no minds were changed. Why is it? that one may agree in advance that a particular result is a fair test of one's theory, then see so much more when the result is known. Why can't we anticipate our response to results that we do not expect to materialize? Now, actually, the psychology of this is straightforward. The normal flow of reasoning is forward, from what you believe to a possible consequence. When someone proposes a serious critical test, you cannot get from your theory to the result, without adding an extra wrinkle. The extra wrinkle is hard to find. If it were easy, this would not be a serious critical test. On the other hand, the result probably follows from the adversary's theory, so the lazy solution is to concede provisionally. The situation changes completely when the result is known. It is a constraint, and working backward to a slightly wrinkled theory is much easier. So it's not the case that people refused to admit that they had been wrong. They were only wrong in failing to see that the experiment didn't prove anything. 
This is where the extra 15 IQ points come from. You can explain surprises that you could not anticipate. I was also impressed by the fact that Anne and I didn't change our minds. I had read Kuhn and Lakatos about the robustness of paradigms, but I didn't expect that minor theories would also be impervious. In fact, the stubborn persistence of challenged beliefs is much more general. To a good first approximation, people simply don't change their minds on anything that matters. Now let's start from domains where we know people don't change their minds, politics or religion. When you ask people, why do you believe what you believe? They answer by giving reasons. Subjectively, reasons are prior to beliefs, which can be deduced from them. But we know that the power of reasons is an illusion. The belief will not change when the reasons are defeated. The causality is reversed. People believe the reasons because they believe in the conclusion. In politics and in religion, the main driver is social. We believe what the people we love and trust believe. This is not a conscious decision to conform by hiding one's true beliefs. It's the truth. This is how we believe. Indeed, beliefs persevere even without any social pressure. Classic studies by the late Stanford social psychologist Lee Ross established the phenomenon of belief perseverance. The general idea that you provide evidence that suggests a belief, for example, you give people the task of guessing which suicide notes are genuine, then you provide feedback about accuracy, people draw inferences from what they are told, those who have been given positive feedback score themselves much higher on empathy than people who have been given negative feedback. Then you discredit the feedback by telling people there was a mix-up. The outcome? The elimination of the evidence does not eliminate the beliefs that were inferred from it. People who have raised their opinions of how empathetic they are maintain their new belief. And the same is true if people have been convinced that they are not very good at guessing other people's feelings. Now, I have a personal experience of belief perseverance that I cannot shake. Ten years ago, when I was young and foolish, I published Thinking Fast and Slow. An important chapter in that book was concerned with behavioral priming. For example, the famous study of, uh, in which people are reminded of old age and then they walk slowly. It's a study by John Barge. At the time, I felt that the evidence was important to my view, and I credited the author of that particular study, John Barge, with being a significant influence on my work. Now, the spectacular results that I described in that chapter were mentioned in most reviews of the book and came up more often than anything else in the letters that I got about it. I was completely committed to believing those findings, and in arguing about them, I made what I thought was a good point about science, that belief in results is not optional, that if a large and diverse body of published evidence supports a conclusion, you must believe in it. You cannot only believe results that seem plausible to you. Well, I was wrong, at least in that case. The studies of behavioral priming that I had cited in the chapter were largely discredited in the famous replication crisis of psychology. I'll come back later to what the authors of that study or those studies made of this. As you may now expect, they didn't change their mind, but I did, and I publicly retracted the chapter. However, 
It turns out that I only changed my mind about the evidence. My view of how the mind works didn't change at all. The evidence is gone, but the beliefs are still standing. Indeed, I cannot think of a single important opinion that I have changed as a result of losing my faith in the studies of behavioral priming, although they seem quite important to me at the time. Now, one thing that I want to talk about here is, is adversarial collaboration, a notion that I introduced, and I'll tell you about it in a few minutes. But, and it's the idea is that people who don't agree agree together to work together towards a joint truth, either by experimentation or by discussion. Now, from what I've said, the phenomena of belief perseverance and the 15-point effects set limits to what can be achieved by adversarial collaboration. We can expect that even successful collaborations will end with few minds changing, and we can expect adversaries to renege on their commitments to, to critical experiments. They will do this in good faith as beneficiaries of the 15-point increment. If adversarial collaboration will rarely change minds, you may well wonder, what's the good of it? Now, there are several solid answers to this question. One of the answers is that adversarial collaboration is an alternative to what I call angry science, which is my name for the way controversies are normally conducted. Angry science is such a pernicious waste of time that even a relatively ineffectual collaboration is a preferable alternative. Around the time that Anne and I were debating object reviewing, our joint work, my work with Amos Tversky on judgment and choice began to attract attention. And as it might be expected, not all that attention was friendly. So I was exposed to the nasty world of critiques, replies, and rejoinders, and to the exhausting experience of trying to write a sensible review of articles that I thought infuriatingly unfair. Controversy is a terrible way to advance science. It is normally conducted as a contest in which the aim is to embarrass. Sarcasm for beginners, I said, and, sar and advanced sarcasm. Though things can go on forever. Gerd Gigerenzer published his first critique of our work 37 years ago, and he's still not done with me. Now, the feature that makes most critiques intellectually useless is a focus on the weakest argument of the adversary. It is common for critics to include a summary caricature of the target position, refute the weakest argument in that caricature, and declare the total destruction of the adversary's position. In replies and rejoinders, it's rare for anyone to concede anything. Doing angry science is a demeaning experience. I've always felt diminished by the sense of losing my objectivity when I get into the mode of scoring points in a debate. I hated it so much that I adopted a policy that Amos Tversky thought irresponsible. I do not respond to hostile papers, and if a submitted manuscript makes me angry, I do not review it. So, when I found myself disagreeing with a piece of research, I found it was natural for me to suggest a collaboration, all the more so because my adversaries were friends. It's a simple story. I had published a claim that people are more likely to kick themselves about something they did than about something they did not do. So, for example, if John invested in company A 
and knows that if he had invested in B, he would have made $100,000 more. Compare that to Tom, who held stocks in company B and sold them to buy stock in A. They're in the same objective situation, but one of them did something, sold the, uh, his stocks, and the other didn't do something. He didn't buy the, the better stock. Now, it's very clear that in that case, one of them feels more regret, at least. I thought it was clear, and there were data indicating that. But Tom Gilovich and Vicky Medvick published the finding that old people spend a lot more time regretting the thing they did not do than the things they did. So I had an answer, my 15 IQ points. I said, old people don't really kick themselves. Their regret is wistful, almost pleasant. It's not emotionally intense. So we ran an experiment, and everyone was wrong. It turned out that delayed regret is mostly wistful, but it can be intense. Now, I was unaware that a similar collaboration had been carried out by Latham and Locke in 1988 and published as sort of an experiment in collaboration. Being unaware of it, I developed a protocol for what I named adversarial collaboration. The next collaboration was much harder. It involved Ralph Hertwig, who was Gig Renz's student and frequent collaborator, and is now his successor as the director of the Max Planck Institute in Berlin. Here we need an arbiter that we both trusted, and we chose Barbara Mellers, now at Penn. And actually, that episode took a long time, and it was sometimes quite unpleasant, because both Ralph and I really wanted to win and didn't entirely trust each other. So we published a protocol for adversarial collaboration that reflected our experiences, including how to deal with arguments about the precise predictions to which we had committed ourselves. Turned out that a lot of note-taking uh, is necessary. So the protocol insisted on the mediator's responsibility for record-keeping. The key statement in the protocol is, except in advance that the initial study will be inconclusive, allow each side to propose an additional experiment to exploit the fount of hindsight wisdom that commonly becomes available when disliked results are obtained. And we ended up, actually, Ralph and I, with considerable mutual respect. We concluded our paper on an upbeat note. Despite our mishaps, we hope the approach catches on. In an ideal world, scholars would feel obliged to accept an offer adversarial collaboration. Editors would require adversaries to collaborate prior to or instead of writing independent exchanges. Scientific time, uh, meetings would allot time for scholars engaged in adversarial collaboration to present their joint findings. In short, adversarial collaboration would become the norm, not the exception. On a personal level, we, Ralph and I have had very cordial relations ever since. And I had another adversarial collaboration with a group of British economists. All three empirical collaborations that I participated in ended up messy and incoherent. And I now believe that this outcome is both very likely and actually desirable. In every case, 
both sides made wrong predictions, predictions that were not confirmed. And I think that's good, but I need to explain why is it good. And I believe that we are not, we theorists, are not fully aware of the extent to which the experiments we carry out are biased to favor our theoretical point of view. I'm not alluding to a file drawer problem to people hiding research that they don't like. The bias enters at the design stage. When you consider possible experiments, you apply your intuition to select those that are likely to support your view. In an adversarial collaboration, the other side is pushing for experiments whose results are likely to be embarrassing to you, precisely because your theory doesn't rule them out. Now, you don't have to subscribe to a view that science only advances by refuting wrong ideas to accept that exposing the weaknesses of a theory is useful. And in a world in which neither adversary is likely to concede core points, it may be optimal for both of them to be wrong. Now, I had two non-empirical collaborations that deserve mention. The first was with two people I considered friends, who wrote a very aggressive comment on a paper I had published about the evaluation of experiences. When I read their piece, I suggested an adversarial collaboration, an experiment, but they actually turned me down. One of them said he thought a controversy would be more interesting. So I wasted a lot of time doing something I had decided never to do, writing a snide reply to their critique. But on the day before my reply was due, I decided to write those those people, those former friends, pointing out that our exchange of biting comments would hurt all our reputations. And I suggested a format for a joint piece to replace the reply rejoinder. We started by stating what we agreed on, and then we presented conflicting views on a series of topics. The outcome was vastly better for everybody than the alternative, and we ended up on several terms. In general, a common feature of all my experiences has been that the adversaries ended up on friendlier terms than they started. Now, my most satisfying experience of adversarial collaboration was with Gary Klein. Gary is the intellectual leader of a community of applied psychologists who are pretty much united in their rejection of the work I have been involved with. Gary is best known for his work on expert intuition, which he greatly admires not his work, he admires expert intuition, in apparent opposition to the work that Amos and I did on limitations of intuitive thinking. Now, it was clear, or should have been, that we're both right. Intuition is sometimes marvelous and sometimes flawed. The question is when, what are the boundaries of the marvels and the flaws? So I invited Gary to explore the question of boundaries. This wasn't easy. It took us six or seven years to write a paper that was titled A Failure to Disagree. To get that far, both of us had to overcome objections from our tribes. Uh, people actually didn't want us to collaborate, which was strange. Now, there were two positive outcomes of those six or seven years of hard work. We became very warm friends, and we agreed on the boundaries. We actually specified three conditions for trusting expert intuitions. But perhaps the most interesting outcome was that we did not really agree. Gary remained an admirer of expert intuitions, and I remained a critic. And we continued to differ in our basic beliefs and in our intuitive tastes, in particular 
we differed on what we, on what we found funny and delightful. For Gary, it is when bureaucratic rules lead to stupid mistakes. And for me, it is when smug and self-satisfied experts fall flat on their faces. Now, while thinking about this topic, recently I tried to identify positions that I will not give up. And I found that they come in two kinds. Their methodological preferences and their taste for theories. So it turns out when I look at it that the, exper- the methodologies that I prefer, the oper- operations that I use in experiments, they rule out challenges. And so I'm interested only in experiments, basically. I view as challenges only experiments that are done my way. And I prefer simple and natural situations, and I prefer a particular form of the experimental design that's called between subjects, and results that come in other uh, ways, you know, according to other methods, I actually don't take very seriously because I can explain why they're not real. The only real thing is the way I experiment on on results. So those are my methodological preferences that I, that I, I discovered I'm very stubborn about. Now, Deeper yet are my tastes, and it turns out that I like phenomenology more than I like analysis. I don't like to reduce cognitive events to flowcharts and to uh, those kinds of mathematical models. I have a very strong preference for facts over theory, and I like irony. Now, these tastes matter. For example, my preference for phenomenology and for Gestalt psychology, it's not an accident that critiques of my own work are often very similar to critiques of Gestalt ideas. The critics have different tastes on fundamental issues, and that is really something that I discovered, the large extent to which we are talking across differences that are unbridgeable because we disagree on our tastes. These tastes matter. So, for example, the style of my research work seems to be very much like the style of the Gestalt phenomenologists. And it turns out that the critics of my work and the criticisms of my work are quite similar to the criticisms of Gestalt psychology. To my surprise, I found that my basic psychological tastes were established and explicit in my early 20s before I went to grad school. Now, the last anecdotes that I want to share with you are about the replication crisis, which turns out to be relevant to the topic of adversarial collaboration in several ways. I already mentioned that the early focus of the replication crisis was behavioral priming. Specifically, someone failed to replicate Barger's iconic study of slow walking. I got actively engaged because I believed in Barger's work. A former student had told me some time earlier that she didn't believe the study and wanted to replicate it. And my answer to her was, don't try to replicate because you will fail. I would also fail. I believe these experiments demand a sort of artistic directorial skill that neither you nor I possess. And I believe that John Barge is capable of replicating his own results, and that's enough for me. 
Now, I now think that this was probably another error of judgment on my part. But at that time, when I heard there would be a workshop on the problem of priming, I volunteered. And I volunteered because I wanted to argue the case that some social psychologists have unique but solid skills. However, during the two-day workshop that we had on that problem, I was impressed by the strength of the sentiment that was building up against priming. So when I came home, I wrote a letter to a lot of priming researchers whose names I got mostly from John Barge. And in the letter, I warned them about a looming train wreck that would be especially damaging to their students on the job market. I identified myself as a general believer in behavioral priming and reiterated my skepticism about replications. Now, I thought that replications by investigators who are new to priming research and who may not be attuned to the subtlety of the conditions under which priming effects are observed or to the ease with which those effects can be undermined, those replications should be trusted. That's what I believed then. And I suggested an idea that I call daisy chain replications, where a group of labs that agree on the phenomenon and agree that behavioral priming is real, they get together, each lab picks its favorite result, the result of lab A is replicated by lab B, the result of B replicated by C, and so on. Now, one week later, the letter was leaked and published in Nature with an incendiary title, Nobel Laureate Tells Social Psychologists to, clear up, to Clean Up Their Act. Believe it or not, I've actually been blamed for causing the replication crisis by attracting media attention to a minor problem. Some social psychologists have wondered about my motives for wanting to destroy social psychology by writing that letter, and I lost many friends. Now, the crisis provides ample evidence for the thesis that I'm developing today. People didn't change their mind. Social psychologists circled the wagons and developed a strong antipathy for the replicators. A president of the American Psychological Society called them methodological terrorists. And another eminent psychologist suggested that people who have ideas of their own would not get involved in replications. There were essentially no takers for my suggestion that priming researchers should proactively replicate each other's work. And this eventually convinced me that, didn't, that they did not have real confidence. They believed their findings were true, but they were not quite sure they could replicate them, and they didn't want to take the risk. And this is another instance of belief perseverance. Now, Besides antagonizing social psychologists, I also managed to make myself unpopular among replicators when I published a paper on the etiquette of replication, which argued that replication should always be an adversarial collaboration. <coughs> People argued that method sections should be sufficiently explicit to guarantee replicability without having to consult the author. I find this attitude shocking, actually, just about as shocking as the defensiveness of priming researchers. But none of this really matters. The crisis has been great for psychology. In terms of methodological progress, this has been the best decade in my lifetime. Standards have been tightened up. Research is better. 
samples are larger, people pre-register their plans, uh, their experimental plans and their plans for analysis. And besides, behavioral priming research is effectively dead, although the researchers never conceded. Everyone now knows that it's not a wise move for a graduate student to better job prospects on a priming study. So the fact that social psychologists didn't change their mind is immaterial. A great flowering of adversarial collaboration followed the crisis, by the way. Several different advances were proposed in protocols for adversarial collaboration. There was one group that spent an entire week in a hotel to write a joint paper. Uh, there were protocols suggested for allowing adversarial collaboration for people who differ in rank and status. Uh, there were continued collaborations over several years. Uh, and particularly useful, I think, is the combination of adversarial collaboration with pre-registration, which is becoming increasingly popular. Now, the particular occasion for my thinking about this was that I was exposed to a massive adversarial collaboration. And it turns out that, that the Templeton Foundation uh, is funding adversarial collaborations on the topic of consciousness. And it turns out there are many theories of consciousness and they are funding, I think, a total of $20 million spending on five large adversarial collaborations. And they are conducted with extremely careful protocols, including the fact that the adversaries uh, are required to sign on to the idea that they are committed to, which I predict they will go back on, but uh, that's, that's the way it's done. But most important, the research is collected by neutral laboratories. It's not collected by the adversaries themselves, which I'm told, at least in some cases, people found quite disconcerting. But clearly, this is a movement that is now spreading. And, in, and, and I think that the era of pre-registration, I mean, the post-crisis period, uh, is is causing a massive change in the way that science is being done, in psychology at least. And, and it's encouraging collaboration of all kinds. And in particular, it's, it's encouraging adversarial collaboration, it turns out. And I'm quite convinced that that's a good event. The response to the replication crisis in psychology, and and actually, there is a replication crisis in many other disciplines. It actually started from medicine, from a famous paper by Ioannidis, uh, who claimed that most published research in medicine are false. So the response to the crisis has been uh, a tightening of methodological standards, including uh, something that is now called the open science movement. And the open science movement greatly increases the commitment, the pre-commitments that researchers make before they do their research. They have to actually pre-register their plans in a public site. And in the, in the experiment that is later published, they are committed to uh, distinguish between the results that they got from, from the parts of the experiment or the analyses that they had pre-registered, and results that they just discovered 
have another status, have actually a lower status as hypotheses. This is a radical change in the way that science is done and in psychology and, and in some other disciplines, and it's a major improvement. Now, in conclusion of what I've said, Lakatosh distinguishes between paths for challenge theories, two paths. One is progressive refinement, and the other is defensive degeneration. Eventually, the path on which a theory is set becomes obvious to everyone, except perhaps the theorist. And this is how adversarial collaborations can advance science without adversaries changing their mind. Now, I want to end with a quote from Bob Mellows, who said, do not change minds, open a little wider. This is what dentists say when they're about to pull a tooth, and it's a good thing.